Hello, and thanks for listening to 90,000 Hours. I'm your host and producer, Robin Landy. Today's guest is Melissa McDonald, who is a middle school teacher living and working in Oakland, California. If you're enjoying the show, please do take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe over at Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Eric Kuhn for the use of his music in this episode, and thank you for listening. I just finished my ninth year teaching. I've been teaching in middle school the entire time. For the first five years, uh, I taught seventh grade history in Watts, California at a charter school. For the last four years, I've been teaching sixth grade humanities. So that's um, history combined with literature, English, you know, like we all grew up calling it. For the first five years, I would have about 150 kids every school year. And right now I'm at a smaller school in uh, the Bay Area. And so I usually have 62 each year and they're sort of split up into two groups. So I work with what they call the core classes. So math, science, English, history. Um, There are two of us teachers. And so I have a partner teacher who teaches math and science. And then the kids also have, you know, PE and art and those kind of things. So the school I teach at is part of Oakland's small schools initiative. So we're actually a TK through eighth. So a lot of the kiddos who go to school where I teach are there from like their very first year in school until they're ready to head off to high school. Um, So the class cohorts are not as big as they are at other schools, you know, but it's kind of cool to have that intimate setting where like somebody's having a bad day and you can be like, why don't you go read books to kindergarten kids in your kindergarten teacher's room for a little bit and like get your life together. Come back when you're ready. It's kind of a long running joke in my family that um, we have teachers and lawyers and teachers and lawyers and teachers and lawyers. That's like what my family is composed of in a lot of ways. For most of my life, the two things that I did not want to be very specifically were a lawyer or a teacher. Like those were the two career paths that was like "Mm, anything but. I did lots of work in like retail, food service, all that kind of stuff. I did not go to college at sort of the traditional age when a lot of my peers went because I was busy like, hey, I'm having a good time. I'm partying. I'm finding myself, all that kind of thing. Traditional academics was not where my head was in any sense of the word. Like I said, retail, food service, that kind of thing, because that was super flexible because I could go out and party at nighttime and like still show up and pay my rent doing what I was doing and coffee shops and things. And that was, um, it was fun on a lot of days. It was also like a grind. A lot of times we all know customer service is, it's kind of how I feel now. So after a lot of years of sort of practicing being broke is often how I describe it. I started thinking about like, okay, well, what is interesting to me? What do I want to do? And I was really lucky. I was able to travel for like a year and a half from like 19 to 20. And so I was really interested in just other places, other cultures. And so I went back to school with this focus on anthropology, did a lot of digging through the community college system and had some really cool professors. And I was like, yes, 
I would love to learn about witchcraft and religions. Let's do it. I love languages, all these things. And for the first time in a long time, talking to professors and other people in an academic setting was interesting and engaging. And I was like, oh, this is what I, it was supposed to feel like when you're having a good time with these conversations. At the same time, I got a nanny share gig and I started having a really good time hanging out with this little person who was not quite two at the time I started the nanny share. And as I'm doing this nanny share and I'm doing community college, Merritt, where I was going, has an early childhood education center. I'm having a good time with this kid. I need to fill a requirement. Maybe I'll take one of these early childhood education classes and see what that's about. I think it could be interesting also. And I really, really liked it. I liked thinking about how kids think and thinking about how we set up learning environments and learning opportunities for children. And I had this great little test subject who I was, you know, doing the nanny share with, where I was like, I just learned this in class the other day. Wonder what happens. Hey, structured choices. You're having a fit because you're a two-year-old. What happens if instead of just asking you what I want, I give you two options? Do you want the red shirt or the blue shirt? (gasps) Whoa, that worked. Okay, we didn't have to have a fight about it and you're going to just move on. It was, again, coming back into school is interesting. Learning about different things are interesting. And learning about learning was interesting. So I kind of kept going with it. So I was doing this and I said, wow, I've taken enough classes now that I could kind of um, do like student teaching and get a certificate to be possibly somebody who works in a preschool. And maybe I think that might be interesting. I think that might be cool. I did uh, one semester of student teaching at a preschool here in the East Bay, which was really, it was fun and the kids were sweet. And by the end of that, I appreciated it. I was like, okay, the little ones are adorable, but the little ones are not my bag. There's too much wiping and too many tears and (laughs) snotty noses. Fast forward a little bit, I eventually decide, okay, I'm going to go to big kids school. And um, I transferred to Berkeley. I got the degree in anthropology, but I still had this idea that I like working with younger people. I like working with kids. There's just a lot of interesting questions and different ways of looking at what all of us take for granted because they don't know yet how much of it is they don't know because they nobody's told them or how much of it is, oh, they don't know because there's not really actually an answer. We've all just kind of agreed on something that we're going to do, but there could be another way for life to look. As graduation was looming and I'm thinking about what the next step is going to be, my mom had a friend who was high up in Teach for America and recommended that as something that I could do. And since I was at this point, you know, just over 30 and had been in school for a while. Mama needed a job to pay the bills and not just another, okay, you got to get credentialed and that's more school and more loans and that kind of thing. Teach for America has lots of things that one could say about it. Um, I think their heart is very much in the right place in a lot of senses. I have a lot of issues with the program, but for me at that time, it did a lot of things um, that were really positive. 
And that was that their goal is to place people in low income schools, primarily students of color. And they sort of partner with different universities so that as you're going through that first year of teaching, you're also working on finishing your credentialing process at the same time. TFA shops me around. They do all this during summer. So like for most people, you graduate in May, you go to what they call their institute. So it's like six weeks of crash course of like, here's how to be a teacher. Okay, cool. Um, Here's your new area. By the way, we're looking for jobs for you. And you have about 30 seconds to sort of get hired is what it feels like. And the summer was dragging on and I didn't get a job and I didn't get a job and nobody was interested because I signed up to be a history teacher. Math and science teachers got hired real quick. I think it was in like the last week of Institute where I was starting to worry about like, so what happens if I've signed up for this and I don't get hired? How does that work out? And I got a call that like, oh, there's this woman. She has a school in Watts. It's a little charter school. She wants to come and see your demo lesson. Okay, great. She missed the demo lesson. So she didn't see that, but she showed up afterwards and was like, okay, cool. Can we talk? We talked for 15, 20 minutes, sort of about my background, why I wanted to teach. All right, it was great to meet you. And then I find out like, within a half hour that like, yeah, she's offering you the job. This, you know, she wants to hire you. Okay, so school starts imminently. I have no idea how to teach history. Um, I've been teaching English during summer school, so I was just completely unprepared. But I got a job as a seventh grade history teacher in Watts. Within a week, I had to go to my professional development sessions and your new teacher session and meet the new team of people I'm gonna be working with start planning out lessons, and then, all right, here we go. Usually when I tell people I teach middle school, folks, whether they teach or don't, they're like, oh my gosh, I have gotten many prayers and blessings, and oh, thank you for that, I couldn't do it. But I actually, I really, I enjoy it more than I don't. I think any teacher who tells you that they love their job absolutely all the time is full of shit or they're selling something, or they're trying to be principal. There are days when everybody's like, oh, why? But middle school, middle school's weird, right? Kids come in, and what I really like about it is they're starting to lose their baby stink a little bit. That's the way I think of it. They know how to tie their shoes. They know how to go to lunch. They kind of understand how school works. They understand concepts like homework and raising their hands and those kind of things but they are still they're still little they're not teenagers just yet they get there in middle school and we have so few rites of passage in our society being called a teenager is a change for kids it's that step closer to being an adult somebody with real autonomy and a real say so over what's happening They come in and like sixth graders were just the biggest, smartest, toughest kids on their school campus. (gasps) And suddenly they're new again and they're going into deeper waters and they have to change classes and these things. And they're a little freaked out and they go from feeling really powerful to feeling that lack of control again. And that sort of being the low man on the totem pole moment. Seventh graders, seventh graders are wild, man. Seventh graders are like, 
when a lot of kids, I'd argue that the vast majority really hit puberty full stride. <laughs> and <laughs> they are funny. Oh my God. They come back as like different people, you know, gossiping at lunchtime and coming in after lunch with just drama. All this stuff just goes hard in seventh grade. And then by the time they hit eighth grade, they're again, they're at the top of the mountain and they're about to head off to high school. And that's another big transition. And they are feeling that they're young adults now. The thing that I like the most about teaching middle school is that I think of my job as teaching uh, 50% academic content and 50% how not to be an asshole. That's what I do because kids are learning that because they are becoming autonomous actors. Parents can't control you. You know, those consequences that you had before, they don't carry the same weight because you're realizing that like, I'll do what I want. What are you going to do about it? Those peer pressure things and coming into yourself and learning who that is and how to engage with the world on your own terms you do a lot of that learning in middle school. I don't believe that the kids that I teach are going to remember absolutely everything that they learned about medieval history or ancient history or how to read literature for me. But I do think that some of the, oh, you had a problem with your best friend at lunchtime and you guys were sitting together at the same table group and you have to figure out how to cope in this academic setting, much like a professional setting where you're not allowed to let your bad day ruin everything, but those feelings are real and so intense and you don't get to pretend that they don't exist either. So how do we navigate these life lessons? The same things that sort of brought me back to education and academia when I went back to school where I was discovering that like, oh, I don't have to learn just the things that somebody told me about. I get to have my own interest and I get to go and figure out what that is and I get to learn what I want about it. I think that's something that we're missing a lot in the American education system, but I really try to bring into my classroom and I think that middle school is a really fruitful time for that. Where what I like to do in my classroom is, hey, if we're learning about mythology or politics or, you know, inequality in the world, here's what we've been talking about. You can look at so many places in history where I'm like, hey, let's talk about whose voice is missing again. Oh, that's right. We haven't read anything written by a woman this whole year. Anybody else notice that? And you tell the kids like, okay, so... Make some connections in your own life. What's interesting to you about this? When I first started teaching history, because of the state standards and the federal standards and the, all this stuff, kids were being tested very much so on this sort of, um, it felt like a grab bag of knowledge. I was supposed to teach medieval history, which goes, I mean, it's the end of the Roman Empire up through basically until you hit the founding of the United States. You know what I mean? So you're looking at like, what, 1,500 years of history? And then they have to take this test at the end of the year to show what they've learned. Let me tell you, 
it's hard to predict what's going to be on there. And the kids are like, shit, my seventh grade brain cannot remember all of these little factoids, you know? And it was very, very multiple choice. I suppose it depends on where you teach. And I've only taught at two schools, you know? So my perspective is somewhat limited in that way. But I also think that over, you know, a couple hundred kids, I think this holds fairly true. Kids in school today are definitely being brought up with the notion that this testing is high stakes for them. I'm not sure that they understand exactly what makes it so high stakes for them exactly, other than the fact that they've been hearing it for years. Um, And when they don't do well, a lot of them really take it on the chin. A lot of them don't give a damn, um, but a lot of them really do. Because, you know, none of us want to hear that you didn't do something well, that you scored like below proficient at what I'm I'm not good at being a seventh grader with the changes and the switch to common core, which everybody wants to talk about and all that stuff, but basically different standards and sort of a different way, theoretically a different way of assessing knowledge um, has opened up more opportunity for kids to be able to write about what they're understanding a little bit more and rather being focused on a discrete piece of knowledge and whether you know it or you don't, being able to identify things like, what's the main idea of this thing that you just read? Which at its best, I think is a more meaningful thing to gauge kids on. Like, do you understand what you're reading? Can you figure out why the author was trying to say this or what their perspective was in something? How do different sets of facts connect to one another? You know, that's more meaningful than what kids were being tested and assessed on when I first started teaching. It's still a lot of multiple choice. It's still a lot of grab bag. It's still really racially biased. It's still really English as your first language biased. But I do think that that's a change. Another change that... I have noticed when I first started teaching and like kids had finished a test early or finish a thing early. And, you know, we all remember this time where like everybody in the room is still working on something, but you're done and you got to have something to do. And I can't disturb everybody else because they're working. And when I first started teaching, I would just have to have like so much scratch paper, just crates of scratch paper because that was the easiest thing to do is you give kids some scratch paper. I don't know, draw a picture, make one of those um, cootie catcher, fortune teller things, you know, whatever it is. Write a note to a friend if your friend is also done and you guys can do it silently without sending it to anybody else. There's a million things you can do with scratch paper. And the kids were good with that. And I started noticing, I want to say it was about three years ago. And it felt like a moment. There was a day when I tried to give a kid in my class some scratch paper. Oh, you done? No worries. I got some scratch paper, you know? And this kid looks at me and says, what am I supposed to do with that? Uh, What do you mean, what are you supposed to do with that? Well, well, can I use one of the computers or something? Can Can I do something else? And we have this conversation, and I'm realizing this kid can no longer entertain themselves with a piece of scratch paper. They needed something that took a more active role in their entertainment. And that is something that has definitely changed. Now, we had a lot of technology at the school, the very first school I was at for the first few years. 
but kids were more able to unplug. It was always fun to play games and do that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong, not that old, I haven't been teaching for that long, but that shift of like being able to sort of just go rogue and like figure it out on your own without something else to sort of do some of the fun for you, kids are starting to lose that. But there's a lot that's like, the more things are different, the more they stay the same. You know, we're still under budget, overworked, underappreciated. Parents are still more awesome than they are. Administration, roll the dice. You'll find out what you get. A lot of times it's good. And a lot of times, whoo, Lord. Biggest challenges day to day. First one that definitely comes to mind, and this is not necessarily an everyday, but it sure is regularly. When you are teaching, there's the part of you that has to have an organized system for the way things happen. Um, You have to be thoughtful about like the content that you're trying to get across and make sure all that makes sense and that you know what you're talking about. And then there's the part that's performance piece, right? Like I'm in a room and I have 30 people who are all watching me. Not necessarily because they want to, they have to, and they are an audience, you know, they didn't buy the tickets, but they're an audience. And if you lose your audience, your whole day can spin out in a second, because if they're not interested in what you're talking about, or interested in the activity that you have going on and the way that it's sequenced and like the instructions that you gave, suddenly it turns into a shit show because everybody's got a question or they're doing sidebars or like we can't move forward. Sort of orchestrating how much is me talking versus how much is them doing and how does it all fit together and how to keep kids actually engaged in something that they did not necessarily choose to do. That is, it's really amazing when it goes well. When you hear the hum of like kids, and like, yeah, well, we'll check this out. It's great. But when it doesn't and there are crickets, when you just asked a question in the classroom, and suddenly it feels hotter and 15 people need water or the bathroom or something. You're like, Oh God. Oh God. This is going to, this is going to go badly. Another thing that can be, it can be stressful. I try not to let it bother me, but it's sort of always there is um, teachers get observed a lot. We're constantly being observed by administrators or instructional coaches or somebody's parent wants to come in or another teacher wants to come in and like check out how you're doing something. And you and the kids create your own world and your own environment in this classroom. There's nothing like when you start realizing that I may be the captain of the ship, but I'm not the only person figuring out where we're going. You know, like there are 30 other human beings in here. And if we're not working together, if there is not a symbiotic relationship, then we're doing it wrong. And when you really get that, instead of trying to make them do all the time, that's another intensely powerful moment. And so when you sort of are over the crest of that wave and you're like, yes, we have things that we agree on together and we are treating each other with mutual respect and we are learning together and somebody from outside comes in and starts looking and wants to come over to your students and whisper like, okay, so what are you guys learning today? Okay. 
Um, do you know which standard you're working on? Oh, all right. And what's your objective for the lesson today? And you're like, oh, for God's sakes, we were doing so well. And you came in with this pile of bullshit. And now the kids feel on edge. And that makes me feel on edge because, you know, whatever. Actually, for my first five years, I was on an at-will contract, which meant that like tenure was not an option at the charter school. So like every year they had to decide they still wanted me. So that was higher stakes on the observation front. Last year was my first year as an actual tenured teacher. It definitely gave me more of the like, okay, come on in, observe whatever you want. I'm down to learn from whatever. If you have actual constructive criticism, if there's something that you saw where you're like, oh, hey, have you thought about, or I have a resource for, I'm down to hear that. But if you're just going to come in and treat my kids like zoo animals, great. I'm really good at smile and nod. That's cool. Have a nice day. (laughs) And then there's all the other stressful things where you're like, there's never enough time. You know what I mean? Like, when do I get to go pee? That's another stressful thing, right? I teach two hour blocks, two and a half hour blocks in the morning. And when you finish your cup of coffee and you still have an hour and a half left to class, and you're like, ah, you have probably heard other teachers say this because we're not shy about it. Teaching is the only job I know of where it is more stressful to take a day off than it is to just fucking go to work. Because if I want to take a day off, I have to come up with a lesson plan and a seating chart and who to talk to if something goes wrong and here's the number in the office and blah, 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 blah. And it's so much more work. And then you get back to work after you're recovering from your cold, which you're not really recovered from because you didn't want to make a lesson plan for more than one day. And you come back and there's all this work that the kids have done that the sub maybe got the directions right or whatever, but they collected and here's what happened and deal with the aftermath because, you know, like Simone and Tasha had a fight during lunch. So you'll need to talk to them, whatever. Um, So, yeah. As a teacher, I am a mandated reporter. So um, every year we have to do like our child abuse trainings, which are a complete joke. I mean, it's a, you know, 30 minute webinar with some multiple choice questions telling you the signs and symptoms and those kind of things. And we all do it. And, you know, I have the numbers from, for CPS. I have never had to call authorities about any particular child who I felt was in danger or anything like that. I know of situations where that's happened, but kids, kids are human beings. Kids are human beings. And sort of reflecting back on what I was saying before about how I see part of my job as helping them navigate the transition from childhood into young adulthood and into being an autonomous being, they deserve the respect that an independent human deserves. Their judgment is not the same as an adult's, you know, that prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. So there are definitely times they can get themselves into trouble with it, but they have a right to privacy. And the fact of the matter is that like a lot of kids spend more of their day with me than they do with their parents or their grandparents or anybody else in their family. Um, So there are times when they come to me because they're having something going on. Maybe it's between them and a friend. Maybe it's something that's going on with their family. And they talk to me because they trust me and they need an adult that they trust to talk to because life is being hard right now. 
I think it would be the truth no matter where I taught, but there are definitely some situations that have come up while teaching in Watts and in East Oakland. Kids have some real specific worries that really require privacy. I've had kids who have come to me, you know, in tears, especially during, you know, the dumpster fire, worried because their parents were illegal immigrants and they were terrified that their parents were going to get deported or their uncle did get deported and what that means. And they're kids and they need to be sad about it and they need to be honest about it and they need to feel those feelings. If somebody comes to me with a story like that, I consider it a sacred trust. I am not going to talk to anybody you know, my political feelings aside, my political feelings being that like, I wouldn't say it anyway, but um, they came to me because they trusted me and they're having a moment. And so my job is to listen. And if asked to offer any kind of advice or help that I can, it's not my job to spread your business in the street like that. Nah, girl. I've had students who were homeless and living like off and on in cars or shelters and needed some help. Or maybe I knew that because I heard it from their teacher from last year, but they didn't tell me that directly. But you know, the granola bar stash that lives in my classroom, I'm gonna make sure you know about it. And maybe like, hey, did you have breakfast this morning? You wanna take five outside the classroom? But I'm also not gonna say, oh, I heard that, you know, so I wanted to really step in and let you know that I'm here, you know, that's also not my business. Because I mean, at the end of the day, teaching is about relationships. Teachers will always tell you this, that they they don't learn shit from you until they believe that you care about them. You can be the best teacher in the world on paper, but until a kid believes that you care about them, they will not learn from you. It's a human to human interaction part of what made this last year so difficult for everybody. We didn't have that human-to-human interaction. Part of that is also caring about their parents and caring about their siblings who might be at school. You know, parents will come and tell you sensitive stuff that's happening at home, and they'll tell you that, like, oh, we're getting a divorce, or, you know, somebody's sick, and my kid is going to be struggling today. Um, but they may or may not tell you anything about it, you know, and you can really have to hold that with sensitivity and with respect. They need to have people that they can trust. And I think all of us know that like, there are just times in your life when people you can trust is in such short supply that if I can be that, I'm happy to be that. And I take it as a privilege that kids or their families are willing to tell me things. You take work home with you all the time. I think all of us have heard teachers sort of, as a collective group, talk about this, what feels like ad nauseum, even though we all keep saying it because holy crap, can this still be happening? Yeah, I take work home with me. My backpack is always filled. It always has papers that I should have graded, but I didn't quite finish because I needed to space out and watch TV. I get email and calendar notifications on my phone all the time. This last year was nuts because the boundaries of work time and not work time were blurry to non-existent. You know what I mean? So I got emails and 
notifications through our messaging system for school, you know, like 11 o'clock at night from kids. It's hard not to read it. And once you've read it, it's really hard not to respond to it because, ah, either I'll forget tomorrow or, you know, that kind of thing. Like during the strike that Oakland had, what is this now, two years ago, there were many precursor moves. But one of the things we did is we had some days where it was like, I'm just going to work to contract. So I am only working from my 8 to 3.30. And like, let me tell you, it was a great collective like labor movement thing, but it made so much work because I couldn't grade. I couldn't play in lessons. I couldn't make copies. Like there's so much work that gets done off the clock. I used to bring a lot of it home. I used to bring a lot of it home. And then I had my own babies and I feel very strongly that they deserve my time and my attention when I come home. You know, those are the kids that I chose to bring into the world. So I feel like my first duty is kind of to them. And I have feelings when people do not accept that responsibility and I have their children as my students. And I'm like, "Mm, I'm not judging, but I'm thinking. That's all I'm going to say. I still bring some work home, definitely. Um, I still do a lot of work off the clock, but you know, in all honesty, I have accepted that some days when I'm joking, I say like, I'm just going to be a slightly crappier teacher today. I'm a little bit less prepared, but I think that with a little bit of the hindsight of sort of different areas of having done work and now nine years of teaching under my belt, I'm like, no, I'm not going to be a crappier teacher the lesson plan doesn't have to be that involved. I know where we're trying to get to, and I have a lot of tricks in my tool bag to help them work through it on their own. And so maybe we just don't have a giant structure today. Maybe we sort of figure it out as we're going. And that's okay. You can't grade everything. You cannot grade everything. It is physically and mentally impossible. So sometimes you get a check mark. Sometimes I stamp things when you come into class and the kids believe that those stamps are really worth something. And for me, I'm like, oh, no, when I collect that whole sheet at the end of the week, I'm just looking to see are there five stamps on it. It is not for any kind of accuracy. It's just like, did you try? Were you here? Were you conscious? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So flexibility is huge. I thought of myself as a fairly flexible person before, but you know, it was so much of me being able to live my life on my terms and really being responsible exclusively for myself. And again, you know, there's 30, 31 humans in a room. I'm I'm the team captain, but it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not even like mostly about me. All this stuff, kids having a good day, a bad day, you are playing a role in it. I'm not insignificant. I know that, you know what I mean? But um, I'm not the star of the show. Once you sort of hold on to that, being flexible to, so if I'm not the star of the show, what is it that the kids need? What is going to help them move forward in their life and become the person that they want to do? What opens up possibilities for them? And to be able to move to meet that pretty nimbly because, boy, people have done research and teachers have to make like 
more split decisions during a day than airline pilots do. You know, like we're just constantly, oh, okay, that's not working. Hold on. Wait, I need to explain it in a different way. Um, so that's, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It wasn't that I didn't appreciate it before, but I do appreciate it differently now, is how much we as humans are built on relationships and how much of that drives who we are and the choices that we make. Understanding that like, oh, this kid comes in like hot and bothered from lunchtime, so they need like a zone to sort of cool off. Um, this other kid really needs to like wrestle through things independently for a little while, but they need the feedback when they're done because they really respond to like, yes or no, or this or that, or somebody else really needs hugs periodically, all those kind of things. Um, and watching how kids flourish in all kinds of other areas of their life, you know, like how that changes the way they go to lunch, how it changes the way they might read, how confident they feel to like try out for a club or a presentation or something when they choose to tell you stories about what's actually going on in their life, you know, all that kind of stuff, those relationships, they're huge. They're huge. My kids are getting a little older and I definitely am hitting a place right now where I've been talking about it. I'm like, I don't know how much longer the classroom is really sustainable because it's so wonderful, but it's so intense and it needs so much, you know, needs so much from you and to feel like you're doing it well you know teachers all work off hours not just because we have to but also because we care and we love to do it and we want things to go well in our classroom and I don't know if I can do it till I retire I feel like there are other ways of working within a school and working with kids and families that I could do that would change some of the day-to-day and change some of those stress levels. And I think that might help it be more sustainable, but it could also be a boring desk job because one of the other cool things about my job is boy, oh boy, there are no two days that are ever the same for real. So yeah, so I don't know. I don't know, I go back and forth and it depends on what kind of day I've had as to where I come out on that question.